Hello and welcome to DigiListen, a weekly podcast about digital service delivery for the voluntary sector. With sudden impact of coronavirus, charities, community groups, social enterprises and voluntary organisations of all sizes are shifting their service delivery into digital remote channels. We've been hosting online weekly chats with folks from all kinds of charities, experts and people on the front line about what they're learning and how charities can make use of digital to reach people more than ever before. I'm Ross McCulloch, Director of Third Sector Lab, and this week we're talking about website accessibility and UX. Joining me this week is Maddie Stark from Scottish Council for Voluntary Organisations. So it's a common misconception that accessibility is all about those with limited vision, and really making a website or mobile app accessible is about making sure that it can be used by as many people as possible, and that's really what we're going to be talking about today. Um, making your charity's website more accessible also means that you'll be following best practice, mobile web design, usability, and SEO. And actually that knock-on effect that you're going to improve your search engine results and make for a much faster experience that can be experienced by everyone. So Maddie, do you want to tell us a wee bit about why we've chosen the topic this week? So one of the main reasons that we've chosen this topic, Ross, is that at this time we really have been talking a lot around service design. And accessibility seems to become, I dare I see it, it's a bit of an add-on. And what Gareth is going to tell us is that it's not an add-on, it's actually a necessity. Accessibility is everybody's responsibility and Gareth really, really does uh, say why and give reasons for that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that, that kind of Gareth hammers home throughout this is that we need to be taking some of that responsibility in-house and some of that's going to be about training staff, some of it's going to be about... Uh, new skills across a range of teams who might not always sit in digital and particularly when it comes to writing content um, but actually this is probably not dissimilar to the approach um, that we're seeing to cybersecurity from a lot of organisations where that responsibility is outsourced to a specialist organisation some of that's appropriate but actually a lot of this stuff there needs to be a responsibility in-house from the charity and that's that's something that I think Gareth really talks about and really effectively throughout this uh, session. So as we've alluded to, our guest this week is Gareth Ford-Williams, who is Head of User Experience Design and Accessibility at the BBC. And so he's going to be taking us through 10 benefits of accessibility and how the BBC build their products with accessibility at the core. He's also started his talk by pointing to a free resource, which is the BBC's Global Experience Language Tech Docs. And you'll be able to find a link to those in the podcast description. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. I think it's always good to start with a, a giveaway as well, which has got nothing to do with anything that I'm going to talk about, but there's a resource that I think you all might find a little bit useful. So before I get going, it's called the Gel Tech Docs that we're building in the BBC. It's a documentation-driven development approach to accessibility rather than guidelines. So if you're building a button all the way up to a carousel and you want a document that just tells you how to do that accessibly, you'll find all the standard design patterns in there, code examples. We're going to add test scripts, everything in there. So you might find that one quite good. So yes, I'm Gareth. Uh, I'm one of the heads of design. There's there's a, a small gang of heads of UX. There's a UX team of about 250 people and the accessibility team and assistive technology teams are part of user experience. From an organizational point, it makes sense for us to sit in UX because they're a horizontal team, we're a horizontal team. And uh, by the way, the assistive tech team is internal accessibilities for staff. 
the accessibility team. So that's internal systems. The accessibility team is for our external facing digital products and services on all digital platforms. But it's also about it's about people. And, you know, UX is about people and people's experience and accessibility is a fundamental part of that experience, which is why I'm a head of design. So I'm going to talk about 10 benefits of accessibility. I'm going to try and do these from a public service perspective. I'm not going to touch on things like the purple pound, which lots of people talk about because, you know, as the BBC, we don't sell anything. Uh, well, not in the UK, really, anyway. So it's, it's not, you know, people have already paid for it. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of an inherent culturally within our organisation to be as accessible as possible. And, and it kind of, in our history, it kind of goes back a long way when we did the first Envision signing in 1957 ever, um, which was on BBC News, all the way through to pioneering closed captions in the 1970s and, uh, and co-pioneering with ITV and, and uh, several, a few other companies, uh, audio description in the late 90s. So it's one of those things that we just kind of do and we cover the entirety of the BBC's output. And considering, you know, in the UK, we have about 14 million unique browsers a, a week, a day, so, you know, sorry. And uh, it's a, a lot more during the week and we have about 80 million um, unique browsers globally uh, just on world service, which is probably over 100 million com and other international services. So it's a, a huge scale, masses of products, f- over 40 languages. Um, and But we, I, I believe in doing things in a scalable and sustainable way. We have our accessibility stroke for products um, site, which is our guidelines, which is more of a reflection of what we do. This is not a thing that we necessarily use in the BBC. It is a resource. We try and capture the things that we do and, and publish them there. And the gel tech docs, which I've given you a, a link to, which is actually a really neat way of making accessibility a lot easier. There are 10 benefits that I think every organization should have a look at from a public service point of view. I think the core around accessibility, particularly in any organization, is culture. Um, if you've if it's part of the culture, part of the, the, the fabric of the organization in the discussions and you talk about I mean, I'm really, we're really lucky. We know every single director general ever has said, you know, the BBC is for everyone in different ways. And you, if, you, if you're not accessible, you can't be for everyone. You can't be for everyone except them. That doesn't, there's never a caveat. Um, but at the same time, um, as I always say, my life would be very, very easy if people stopped inventing stuff. And uh, so, you know, we, we have to work with innovation accessibility is never a block for innovation we just try and innovate in a way that is as inclusive as possible we're prepared to fail and learn from our failures and uh, and and then every single time we learn we iterate we we grow and we've been from a digital point of view we've been doing accessibility for over 15 years well that's when I, I founded the team 15 years ago in a project which eventually became called iPlayer and uh, and we're still learning we still know there's lots of work to be done there's lots of unanswered questions and we work with other organizations continuously one of the biggest problems we've all got is that we're at the mercy of the framework of technology that we publish our sites in so it's you know how accessible the device is how accessible the operating system is how accessible the browser is how accessible the technologies are that build the site all determine end user accessibility and as from a publisher publishing point of view you know we're one part of that of that framework um, which is why you need to understand the framework and why a, a dialogue with that framework is so important one big part of culture as well within us is we i mean i, I don't necessarily use wicag 
directly. We we're not. I'm not. I, I think WCAG is a very useful tool uh, as a set of guidelines. It's not an answer. It's a tool in many tools uh, to use. Um, useful, very very useful in places. Doesn't always. It's not always um, as clear as you need it to be because it's trying to be agnostic. Doesn't mean it's not an answer either. Um, you know, ac- uh, accessibility is not. Uh, a, a tick box uh, exercise by any means you know if you deliver AA compliance in WCAG 2.1 it doesn't mean um, that accessibility has been delivered but it does mean you've got a framework to make sure that you know you something to build on so it's it's quite useful in a lot of ways you know it's about usability this is about people all the way through and uh, if you if you focus on a mixture of usability and standards compliance and standards compliance helps you support assistive technologies that the users are using, <laughs> you, you end up getting to a good place, uh, which is why we shifted from the guidelines to what the um, gel tech docs are, which is a documentation driven development approach. Um, so have a document for every, every pattern that you build and then build uh, skills within the organization that will allow, enable us to just implement that it's interesting because you know you know that you've got the culture right when you never have a conversation ever again about why accessibility. Um, you just have how accessibility is is the only thing we talk about. Um, so as a, as an accessibility team, we nurture this, and you do need a function. I think particularly within a large organisation is to is to nurture accessibility. There's lots of things and ways that accessibility can go absolutely horribly wrong if it's managed incorrectly. And uh, which is one of the things I'm going to talk about, but it's a probably actually it's going to be the first one. But we also make sure that we have the right kind of discussions, and and they can be difficult. There's sometimes uh, you know sort of ground rules around accessibility, and uh, you know you, there's a couple of awkward questions, and these don't mean they're not meaning to be loaded, but they are really awkward questions that you ask at the start of a project. And and the first one would be something along the lines of whom would we be willing to exclude. And it's a really tough question to ask in anything that you build because you never want to exclude anything, anyone. But when you're dealing with such an enormously complicated uh, international uh, audience, it becomes, particularly for us, it's difficult. So when you're asking questions around, say, BBC.com, which is predominantly used in, in uh, North America and, and in Europe, it's a different question to the one if you're looking at world service, um, particularly on one of the language sites that might be used in Somalia. Um, uh, and there you might be dealing with feature phones uh, with a 240 pixel wide screen, uh, you know, that are drive with an opera browser. And then in, in the States, you've got, you know, sort of much more sophisticated technical framework. Um, you know, you've got the cost of data, uh, in the Sudan and and you know broadband is relatively cheap in other parts of the world and so you're constantly asking those kind of questions is saying how do we benchmark this you know do we in the UK support 10 year old feature phones and it's a valid question to ask and you have to look at the numbers and how to think about the way that you do things but then is the other question that goes follows that is who gets the full experience and so we build really rich experiences but things always fall back you know, there's always that whole thing with grace. It's a term called graceful degradation, if you've ever come across it. And it's a really neat one. And as if a device does not support the full JavaScript experience of a, a website, what is delivered? And you make sure that all of the information, all of the, you know, the learnings are all still presented. It's all still there. None of the content is lost, even if you don't get 
all the you know the bangs and whistles that go with it. So these ten benefits of accessibility, um, I'm, I've got a firm belief that accessibility is is a self-sustaining activity within an organisation, and I'm going to hopefully explore that within these ten things. You know, sh- it shouldn't be a cost as as such. I mean, there is an investment up front around it, but it should recoup that uh, within the way it works, within the way it functions. And the first one is those is reducing refactoring. One of the things I'm not a massive fan of is auditing, um, or at least not in the way that auditing is used. Uh, I don't think auditing is a very useful part of a development process. It usually comes too late, and then you can't do anything about it. Or what you can do is really tough because you're four weeks or three weeks or two weeks away from launch. You run a, the accessibility audit comes in, and you realise the whole thing is is a mess and you don't know what to do because you've backloaded accessibility you've not treated it as part of it i I always i think if you plan to audit you plan to break it um just try to plan not to break it and then you don't have this really expensive rather problematic uh, issue at the end and then all of the code refactoring design refactoring that comes with it massive amounts of resource gets wasted not just in the cost of the audit itself, which can be expensive, but in the cost of the outcomes and dealing with the outcomes of that audit and all of that resource that gets thrown away that was applied in the first place. So when you plan accessibility properly, you find that a lot of this stuff comes out in the wash. And really, if you aren't discussing it in every sprint, um, you're not planning it properly. You know, Don't have a sprint, have it as part of every sprint in the conversation. Accessibility is an interesting one because it, it, it has loads of additional benefits. Uh, it, one of the first that we came across was improved search engine optimization. Now, the example, I, I've actually had a, a bit of a chat with someone about this. And the example I wanted to give, I can't actually mention the name of the organization that did this. Um, but it's another broadcaster. And they um, had all of their online products. They brought in an agency that was pretty good with accessibility to do an accessibility site for them. And they built it. And uh, within a week, it was when you typed in that other broadcaster's name, the accessibility site was the top ranked uh, result uh, in Google because it were, and all of the product managers obviously were not very happy that this tiny information page was trumping their product and they ended up the agency ended up working with all of the products for that broadcaster and they worked with them and then it, it they found a natural order again um things like heading structure things like you know good link text good alt text good title tagging all of this stuff uh and captions um you know they, they it's all google juice and uh, and if you're not building things in a way that is accessible to people, you'll find you're not building things that are accessible to robots, basically, uh, Google bots. And the two things go hand in hand. It's not a perfect match. There are additional things you can do around SEO, but it's a fantastic framework for it, for foundation for SEO is accessibility. Robustness. Now, I can talk about a BBC example here. Accessible uh, web development. And, and that, by that, mean, I mean properly progressively enhancing sites. And by that, I mean, you know, you build a, uh, an HTML page, you add your CSS in layers to JavaScript, and, you know, you properly build it from that perspective. You have a level of robustness around it that, that you're very, very unlikely for that page to disappear, for it to collapse. Even if the, if the JavaScript breaks, if something goes, a library updates, and your page doesn't update and this has happened with third-party libraries they just realize and break everyone's pages and you all suddenly have to pile in and start fixing stuff 
you know, it's expensive and difficult to deal with. Um, the example I give is the 2012 Olympics, the BBC, and we had ploughed a huge, obviously enormous amount of resource in what we were doing online and with the mobile applications and the additional um, TV channels, etc. was all going in on it. And one of the biggest things that we were expecting was the results table. And this was a uh, one of beautifully designed JavaScript heavy experience. It was absolutely, it, it, it had all sorts of things on it. And literally, I think it was, you know, a couple of hours before the opening ceremony, the product broke, something went horribly wrong. Nobody knew what, what it was. And eventually the, um, after a lot of discussion, the, the decision was taken to not fix it because, because we built it progressively. It just fell back to the HTML experience. It still worked perfectly. It just wasn't as fancy as it could have been. <laughs> and we left it like that rather than risk breaking it even further for the entirety of the Olympics and nobody noticed. And building that robustness meant that we didn't suddenly have no results table for, for the Olympics. Um, and honestly, it's those kind of things sometimes, you know, it's, it's, you, you're really glad you take the, the decision to, um, and to use the methodologies and approaches that you are. And, and it, comes into, it comes into its own. Uh, longevity is kind of an extension of that. So, you know, you find that if you build things and the fallback experience of uh, an accessible site will last, outlast uh, some of the fancier third-party <laughs> uh, library-driven sites by years because accessibility is built on the actual foundations of what the web is built on. You know, it's a standards-based platform. W3C run those standards, and if you're compliant to those standards, then you're pretty much compliant to all the browsers because all the browsers are built around those standards and all the technologies that are there to support that are built around them. You know, when you drift away from that, you add risk and risk to longevity. So if you, if you want to kind of, uh, if you want to be able to do almost like fire and forget web pages and come back to them in five years' time and they're still up, build them accessibly and you, you have a much higher possibility of that happening. I'm actually going to, weirdly enough, bring one of my kids into this. So, so my daughter's a UX designer, and uh, which is, it's always tough when, when one of your kids is, is doing the same industry you are and they start teaching you stuff, um, which <laughs> I'm sure happens to a, a, a lot of middle-aged designers who have young designers in the household. Um, and she did a, a couple of things when she was a student. She did a, a, a conference called ID24. It's one that I would recommend anyone to watch if they're interested in accessibility and it's a non-for-profit really good and so she did a presentation in that a couple of years ago and she talked about accessibility from a couple of lenses and one of the things is we get wrapped up in accessibility and treating it as a medical thing you know we think about it sometimes it's because it's quite a loaded term in its own right it's quite an unhelpful word in a lot of ways but it's um you know we think of it too sometimes too much as a worthy thing it's actually you know the things that i'm hopefully explaining here will turn into something that's worthwhile as well as you know just being from a cultural point of view just the right thing to do so she was talking about environmental user experience and in, by environment you know the examples that we she gave was Colour contrast, I think, was one of the examples she gave. And colour contrast, people talk about using high contrast within applications and, uh, and websites. And by the way, we, we kind of build everything from the notion of mobile first because more people 
access web pages now on mobile and tablet devices than they do on PCs and laptops by a long shot. We went past that a couple of years ago, they overtook. And so she was thinking about where people were using it. And if you don't use high contrast, one of the things people do regularly is they turn down the brightness on their phone to save their battery. And they then go and use it in bright ambient light, which means the contrast is absolutely stuffed. You know, if you're not using high contrast, you're going to make it impossible for people to use who have low battery or want to extend their battery life, which is a reality of the users. So this was one of her examples. I mean, I've used it since um, I took the director general down onto the news floor in the um, BBC, we were talking about accessibility and we noticed that every single News 24 TV, that's the one that you can see in the background on the news, by the way, the news for, but all the TVs are running News 24 so people can keep tabs with what's going being broadcast and they're all running subtitles because you can't turn the sound up because it's an open plan environment. Therefore, you've hearing impaired in context of that content, all of your journalists. So there's 400 odd journalists who cannot keep tabs with what on earth is going out unless we live subtitled it. So environmental is really important and situational UX. So people land themselves in various different situations. I had a couple of ones which obviously she brought up, which, which make a huge amount of sense. And so, you know, people, you're carrying a bag. You're now a one-armed user. You've got to think about driving your, your website with that thumb <laughs> on a mobile screen. And suddenly that becomes a UX reality because carrying a baby, carrying a bag, holding on to you know, in a tram or a train or whatever, and they're still using it. You know, they may also be, you know, talking to friends. They may be doing all sorts of bits and pieces. They may be turned in a public place and they can't turn the sound up on the video. There's a lot of things, situational accessibility. I think my favorite one that she brought up was, was a question that I ended up actually talking to Uber about their product managers, um, which was cognitive accessibility because the, if anyone must know about cognitive accessibility, it's Uber, because pretty much they have a huge spike in their traffic between 11 o'clock at night and three o'clock in the morning. And I'm willing to bet just about everyone for one reason or another is cognitively disabled during that point, whether it's fatigue, whether it's just, you know, exhaustion or, or other, um, mostly other, I think. But that is a that is a real concern. So it becomes mainstream from those two points of view. And I'll add to that socioeconomic UX. There's always this danger, particularly around public service organizations, information sites. You know, we have a lot of older users. We also have a lot of people who are users who do not have a great deal of money and cannot afford the latest iPhone, you know, or the latest, you know, Windows machine. And, you know, if you are building accessible sites, you are going to have support for legacy devices built in because they are still, you're still using the same technologies that you're then embellishing, you're then adding stuff to, but you're basically building the same uh, technologies that were contemporary to when those devices were new. Same goes for any sites that deal with children. You know, children always get the, the, the handoff devices. They get the older iPad. They get the older Android device uh, to play games on. They never get the new ones. Well, well, most kids that we come across around CBBS and CBBC don't. And, uh, and so it's kind of really dangerous testing on, on contemporary devices think about that long term and think about your users because if you don't you might find depending on the nature of your organization you're actually engineering out your core audience multimodality is the last couple of or they cover the next couple of things so 
people talk about multimodality as far as content is concerned. If you, you know, as soon as voice platforms appeared, um, they were going, it's brilliant. You know, it's the same content. We can now listen to it. But, you know, it's, it's multimodality is a concept that's been around a long time. It's quite a buzzword in digital at the minute. And people are thinking about different ways that you engage, whether you're touching a screen, whether you're using a mouse, whether you're using the keyboard or a switch to navigate. There's modes in everything. And multimodality from a text point of view is really important. So again, captioning, really, really important stuff. Not only from an SEO point of view, it's really, really important. But when you look at the figures that uh, uh, Facebook and Twitter and other social platforms publish about uh, AV, uh, you'll you'll see that literally over 80%, they declare over 80% of their videos are watched with the sound switched off because they can monitor that. If you're not captioning your stuff, you're basically removing the shareability of your AV. It is now no longer relevant for social media use, which is where you're going to get more AV consumption than probably on your site directly is driving it from there. You know, make sure your stuff is, is actually works when it's shared out of context of your own site. And the same goes for audio. Audio is a bit of an interesting one, though. Scope did a recent thing, and we're talking to them about this at the minute. They did a, a recent piece of work, a study around streamed accessibility, and they brought up audio description. And they've, they've put up uh, percentages for audio description, which is problematic in its own right, because an organization that does 1,000 hours and an organization that does 50,000 hours of streamed content a year, a percentage is not you know, they might do 50% and they may do 25%, but that 25% is going to be enormous compared with that 50%. And so there's, there's some stuff we need to work with them around the measurement of that. But AD is audio description, unlike subtitles. Subtitles is as necessary as the audio of the pictures for us. You know, it's a hundred percent, just do it. But AD fixes broken content. AD is a patch. It's not a core service. The way we try and do things and the way we try and encourage is a thing called by media production which is covered with this by media production came in the nineties. Um, and it was actually an efficiency, a way of obtaining, you know, so we produce TV, particularly all our reportage, our journalism as if it, there were no pictures. So when you're doing the uh, discussion around, you know, it could presentation during the news or anything, actually the whole of the news, you know, let's just take the whole of the news. Um, it's, it's all discussed, you know, there's graphics, but they never depend on the graphics to convey the information. The information is there to help with the words you know, it reinforces its core, but not utterly core. So if people struggle with the audio, it gives a lot of information and you also get that in the text and the text never covers the on-screen graphics or mouths ever. So make sure you position mouths. And by the way, that's an extra tip that's really useful is, is you know where your captioning goes and when you do your shots, make sure the mouths appear above it because people lip read. But with this, what we try and do, the great thing about this is it never needs audio describing because everything is in the audio. It means we can then clip it up and use it in radio or on voice platforms, or it becomes a pod, it can be used and clipped out into a podcast. You suddenly, by scripting for no pictures for your AV and then adding pictures to it, you'll find that your AV is far more usable. You get so much more value out of it and you don't have to reproduce the content, making huge amounts of savings in time and effort and money. And lastly, I think it's just brand value. And I think this just goes all the way back to culture. You know, people, when they have good experiences, they say good things and they have good relationships with your organization. And this is not necessarily about 
you know, PR, but PR can come into this if, you know, that's still a really good thing to say about your, your you know, your organization. But if you do say, like the BBC says, you know, the, the BBC is for everyone, it's just being true to what your organization is about. And look at your organization's core values. If you have a value statement, if it talks about everyone or family, or it talks about, you know, sort of so support around social groups or, or anything, you'll find accessibility is kind of inherent within your language, even if you don't call it out necessarily. I found it quite interesting. I can't remember the exact words now, but there was a recent big court case in America with Domino's Pizzas, and they were defending their right not to make their site accessible. And yet within their own brand values, it actually talked about everybody and it talked about community and it talked about everything. It was like, it's kind of, you should do it. If you actually believed in the values of your own organization from a digital point of view, this wouldn't have been a discussion. It just would be the way that you do things. And I think for, from an organizational point of view, for me, that's the bedrock of all of it. So a massive thank you to Gareth for taking us through his 10 benefits of accessibility. I think what's important is not just the technical question of how do we do accessibility, but taking it away from it purely being about disability. This is about building something that is fit for everyone and fit for purpose. It's a discussion that is still happening with charities, but we need to change that. It should be part of the culture. We asked Gareth how charities could move beyond that discussion it's a difficult one because i mean every organization is going to have its own reasons for the way that it does things and and again you're down to a culture question i think i think the question half the time is why wouldn't you you know it's it's, (laughs) you shouldn't be moving from a point of of actually justifying it you need to justify not doing it um more than anything else and you're talking about from when you start looking at in the way that you know my daughter molly looks at it you're actually talking about every single user and you're talking about entire situations where you're going to say, right, if we're not going to do that, then we're not going to support people on the move. We're not going to support people in social situations. You know, this is one of my always things. I think I think lab based testing is really, really useful, but nobody lives in a lab. So and, and, and the design research team is another team that I established at the BBC. And it's a really difficult thing to do. I think it's very, very useful doing lab-based stuff, which gives you a lot of answers to a lot of difficult questions around, you know, sort of cognitive behaviours. But, you know, people, when you want to know how stuff is actually being used, you have to go into the real environment. And then you find accessibility is actually inherent in everything. It supports them on the move and in, in their lives. And so it's kind of to not support accessibility is not supporting real life for your users <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, you know, no one, very few people sit down, unless you're working, you don't sit down at a desk using a PC that much. Following on from that, we had a question from Heather Cumberland asking, how can organisations take the first steps towards making what they already have accessible? I'd look for a single project, something where you're going to build something from scratch and, and, and actually build it up from that point retrofitting is always problematic you know and i think if you go back to our archive in the past when i started i it was just extraordinary it was we were using tables for layouts i couldn't find two pages that were semantically marked up the same and we were putting about eight thousand pages a day it was just extraordinary 
and I think you know we we started by picking one product, and at the time it wasn't even a product; it was a, a research and development project. And it was like find everything out that you can in that, and build everything that you can do accessibly in that. You know, you start at requirements. You start with when you're doing your business analytics, and you 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 make your decisions then about the way you're going to approach it. People say usually it starts with UX. It doesn't. It starts with it starts before UX. It starts with the questions you ask and the things that you turn around and say, yeah, these are our benchmarks. Hence those two awkward questions. You know, who are we willing to exclude and who gets the full experience? And then you just turn around and just say, right, for everything that we do, how does that fit with our decisions against those two questions? And it gives you an opportunity to learn. And a lot of this is knowledge in the organization. There are lots of useful resources out there. Things like the Jail Tech Docs that we're doing is to just try and Although, you know, everything will look like the BBC. But it, in a way, <laughs> slightly, you can style them differently. Obviously, it's not full of our CSS. But there are lots of resources. Pull the stuff in together and give it your best shot and then learn from it as an organization. And sometimes making mistakes is good. As long as you're learning from them, as long as you make you realize, look at the things that you've done and just go, right, okay, they feed into our requirements. So maybe not the answer some people want to hear when trying to think of ways that we can quickly do more to help our services more accessible, but definitely I think both of us would echo Gareth's thoughts here that trying to retrofit accessibility can actually cause more issues than you solve. So trying to focus your efforts on something, um, you'll have the opportunity to build from scratch with accessibility in mind from the start. And what you learn from that project should help you when delivering your other services. When we're looking for quicker ways to implement solutions, we might find ourselves looking for shortcuts such as pre-built development libraries. And Gareth went on to discuss his experiences using various frameworks and why you should be cautious of this approach and the importance of making good choices around tech use. Accessibility is the way that you do things, particularly, I mean, AV, if you're going to do it for, for people vision impairment, it costs nothing because it's actually a, a process thing. The way that you write the script is the answer. It's not additional stuff. You only do additional stuff if you've broken it. So yeah, it's, it's always that kind of, it's a, it's a really big thing around it when it comes to money. It's, it's usually people wanting to do a certain thing. They want to use React or Angular or whatever, or Vue or whatever third-party library that it is. And all of those create problems. And they're really hard. They make accessibility hard. Um, they're very, very useful for some things. You can do quick and dirty prototypes. You can build websites very, very fast. But the problem is when you do use those third parties, you are kind of backloading the problems. You'll get it out there quickly. It will be really, really nice. And then they update the library. Then it starts. Then you start realizing it doesn't work in various browsers. Then you realize it doesn't work with assistive technologies. Then you realize, and you've got so much fixing to do. If one of those things, I think, I think some of them are incredibly good at building. Uh, very robust. Um, you know, React is fantastic at building Facebook. Uh, if you're not building Facebook, it, it has different levels of benefit. So you need to make good choices. And it goes back to those two questions again. You know, the, the technical choices you make are based on those questions. You know, if we decide, you know, we're not excluding anyone, then you need to look at the technologies that you're going to build and you need to look at the design that you're going to do and actually say, will that exclude anyone? And ask really honest questions. Um, and it gets back down to that. Because then if you backload all of those problems, that is way more expensive than trying to build it accessibly up front. You know, it, it's an issue. It, things that look cheap, I would always be suspicious of. I think in marketing, isn't there's that famous triangle where you can have it cheap, fast or good, and you can pick two. You know, the three never, ever exist. <laughs> and so fast is always the one that I push out. Just get it. You know, try and, try and do cost savings, try and do it well, take the time that it takes to do it. There's always an interesting one about deadlines with that. 
you know if it's a if it's a site or something that's supporting a program we know the program's going out the olympics is going out the olympics is not going to stop and delay for a week because we can't get the website out so we have to be out on time and yet other stuff that we do there's doesn't really matter if it's a week later you know the world won't end it's not tied into anything that's got a specific time scale to it so sometimes be flexible on that just go look we're just going to be thorough and make sure this works and spend a little bit of extra time and care on it So thanks again to Gareth for joining us, giving us a lot to think about there. So tons of good points from Gareth. Any critical ones for you, Maddie, that really stood out? I think for me, Ross, the most critical point that Gareth said or the, or the kind of most critical message that he had throughout what he was talking about is the understanding that accessibility is a question of who am I choosing to exclude by not making our services accessible? I think that's a really key point and it's a really key point for boards to remember. And also, I think it's Tom Loosemore in is it Digital Transformation at Scale. He kind of alludes to this as well around that idea about we should stop making broken things look pretty. Um, and again, Gareth talks about it. it's like, let, let's figure out how to do one thing really well first and then move on. So instead of doing lots of different things all of the time and they're only kind of half working or a little bit working, that idea around focus on doing one thing right first and then moving on and doing this in small increments. So let's get that bit right. Let's get that piece of our skateboard right, for want of a better word. Um, and then you kind of build things in and make it work from there. Yeah, I, I like Gareth's point about trying to not rely on plugins and off-the-shelf tools. And he's not saying that they're fundamentally bad things, but actually this idea that we just kind of build a website and then we just buy a plugin and then we stick it on and then that accessibility ticked as a box is kind of ridiculous. So actually building that accessibility into the start and how you think about not just the technical side of it, but that on-page content on your site, so your apps as well. Um, yeah, and I think that that notion of form over functions, thinking about user benefit, starting with the user and what they want. Um, the Government Digital Service was obviously a good example that, that Gareth pulled out. Uh, in the charity sector, I think two sites that do this really well, uh, so the Citizens Advice site, so both the UK site and then the kind of subsequent England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland kind of sub-sites that sit within it are very, very user-focused. So, you know, in a really simple way, uh, there's no there's no photography, there's no, like, kind of overuse of illustrations. It's getting the information to people really, really quickly, quick page load times and accessibility thought throughout the start. Um, and actually, the, the charity with you, um, the, the kind of kind support addictions charity, have got a new site and that's a, I think a big focus on their site is really how do we get information and support to people as quickly as is humanly possible. So don't forget that we've got a spreadsheet of case studies and resources um, and you can request specific help from SCVO. If you go onto the SCVO website, you type in SCVO Digital into Google um, or if you go into the Third Sector Lab website, you'll be able to access our training through the curve and that's just at thirdsectorlab.co.uk. That's all we've got time for this week. Um, we'll be back next time with our Zoom call with Stuart Pearson, who's Chief Digital Officer at Manchester Citizens Advice Bureau, and Kate Wallace, who's Chief Exec of Victim Sport Scotland, talking to us about advice and information services. You can find more podcasts in this series on iTunes, Spotify, and most podcast platforms. Please do subscribe, review us, and send to anyone you think might find it helpful. Let us know what you thought on Twitter. So, at DigiScott is the main uh, Twitter account to get us on. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week.
Thanks very much to everybody who made this podcast happen. First of all, the charities who joined us in the call and shared all their wisdom. Secondly, Tech for Good Live podcast crew who brought it all together. And finally, we're part of The Catalyst, which is a UK-wide network supporting charities to make better use of digital. 